clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. To those of you here with us in person at 45 Rockefeller Plaza, and those joining us from around the globe via phone and Microsoft Teams, welcome and thank you for being with us for our final Uniquely Rockefeller special client event of 2021. Today's event will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and National Basketball Association Hall of Famer, eight-time NBA All-Star, and Chairman and President of the Dikembe Mutombo Foundation Incorporated, Dikembe Mutombo. For our friends on site with us today in 45 Rockefeller Plaza, we will be having a short in-person Q&A towards the end of our session. With that, it's my pleasure as always to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you very much, Tom, uh, for uh, all the Rockefeller people. Tom Martella has become the voice of Rockefeller. He's the one who just introduced <laughs> us. We've done that about 35 times now, Dikembe. Uh, and it's great to have Dikembe Mutombo here with us uh, today. Uh, we have Dikembe here uh, for some of the uh, reasons that Tom laid out in the introduction, including a spectacular uh, professional basketball career, but uh, also because of everything he's done uh, since uh, and even while he was in the NBA to create a full life, uh, not only for himself and his family, but for uh, all the people that uh, that have come into his orbit and uh, all of the giving back that he does. Uh, at Rockefeller Capital Management, philanthropy is a big part of what we talk to our clients about. The uh, Rockefeller family has been uh, enormously uh, philanthropic and has given back uh, uh, in this country and around the world for over a hundred years now. Uh, so philanthropy is a big theme and, and uh, uh, focus for us here. And you have done a spectacular amount of philanthropy in your lifetime and it's ongoing. Now I did want to introduce uh, Rose Dikembo uh, Mutombo who's uh, here, Rose. Um, <laughs> Uh, we're fortunate to have Rose with us. I don't think she comes to all of uh, Dikembe's uh, speeches, uh, uh, getting to talk to him uh, at home uh, uh, all the time or uh, listen to him at home all the time. Uh, but Rose, it's great to have you here. They have three children uh, uh, who are uh, uh, accomplished in their own right already. Uh, the youngest of whom is uh, playing uh, on the basketball team at Georgetown under a good friend of Dikembe's, uh, Mr. Patrick Ewing. So we'll get to that. But first, we're going to wind all the way back to Dikembe. And we, we uh, uh, in, in interviews you do all the time, uh, people take you all the way back to um, uh, when you first started to play basketball and, uh, you know, you're on the Georgetown campus and, uh, you're, you weren't recruited for basketball. You were going to major in pre-med. But tell us a little bit about when did you actually first touch a basketball? Well, first I want to say thank you so much for having me here today at the Rockefeller Center. So, um, it's um, fish today to be as a, as a guest speaker. Last time I was here, I came here as a, a guest to listen to Jack speaking about uh, uh, the quantum uh, technology and uh, artificial intelligence, which was a great event here in a beautiful place uh, with our team from AQI. But uh, basketball was not something that uh, was my favorite sport. And, uh, even though I grew up and being seven foot three, as you can see me. Uh, <laughs> they can see. <laughs> but soccer was always uh, something that I admired so much. I'm still a big fan of soccer until today. There can be a soccer game there. 
you might see me walk away from the basketball and go watch soccer because that was the sport that I grew up with. Uh, because there was no basketball court in the neighborhood where I came from. The, the closest basketball court was like an hour and a half bus ride to get to the basketball court. Uh, so um, my brother introduced me to the game and my, like when I was getting on the 10th grade, I pick up the game a little bit. Then when I got into college, when I was ready to go to college, then I kind of gave up myself to basketball. I said, okay, I will go to, to America, just study medicine and becoming a doctor. Maybe one day go back home in Africa and treat people. So then how uh, how did it come that you, uh, I mean, I guess this, the story is you're walking around campus, but I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> so how, how did you end up playing for John Thompson and, and everything that followed? No, the first day when I came in, uh, I went to the registration and uh, everybody was like, why are you here? Basketball players are over there. You all have a special line for registration. I said, no, no, I'm not in a basketball team. I'm a student. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of students was a little bit confused. Even the dean was like, why are you here? <laughs> you got to go over there. I said, no, no, no. So everybody's like, questioning me, why you're not in the basketball team? You're so tall, you're supposed to be on the team. And, uh, and uh, my, dean, my dean even recommended me to meet with Father Healy, who's no longer with us. He was uh, our school president back then. Then I went to meet with Father Healy, and then Father Healy was like, you got to be on the team, why not? <laughs> you're from Congo, then uh, it turned out to be good because Father Healy, when he was uh, in a, in a missionary, he got a chance to go to Congo in the 50s, during the Belgian time. So he spent like a couple of years in the colonial time in Congo, kind of knew Congo, knew the people. So we clicked right away. I was like, okay, we will see maybe. Then I started playing pickup game a little bit all, uh, in college with uh, all the freshmen, like my friend Kelly was there, who's not the owner. Like, so we start playing with all of my friends at school and uh, start kicking the butt because I was the tallest one. Uh, and then everybody was like, no, 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 you should be on the team next year. Then uh, the rest of the story and, uh, ended up to be short. And uh, um, the summer after that, there was a man, it was a good friend of Coach Thompson, his name was Dr. Carr, he's a psychologist. And he used to help so many young people in Washington, D.C. Every Sunday, he would pick up young people from different uh, places and take you guys to go play basketball with prisoners. And uh, every Saturday and Sunday, when I was at Georgetown, I would go play basketball in a, in a prison in Maryland. I would go to drive, sometimes drive two hours to Delaware General Prison, go play, uh, play with some of the prisoners, play pickup game and get tougher and get stronger. Yeah, learn how to talk trash and all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out very well. And you said those were tough games because they, they were very tough they, they, right now. These because guys when you're playing against the prisoner, where are you going to run? You're already in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and didn't you say that the other players who played with you on the teams against the, the going around these prisons? 97% of those guys who was part of the program with Dr. Carr go play in the prison every summer, every weekend. We all end up playing in the NBA. Wow. One of them, Walter William, you know very well, played yeah. for Chris Kelly and Sacramento King and so so we all got a chance to play in the NBA. Uh, Mustafa played in Phoenix. Uh, 
Santana playing in Houston. So we all got a chance to go, might go much higher in our, with our game. So tell me about, tell us about uh, uh, John Thompson and some of your early conversations with him. And, and, you know, he was a great leader and a great coach for so many years. What was it? He was not just a leader. You know, I look at uh, my late coach, legendary John Thompson. He was a father figure to me. He, I always say, I would have not been in a place that I'm sitting today if it was not because of John Thompson. I will not be where I am despite all the education, the value I got from my father and my mother. But to be on the leadership of a man who tells you, son, if you screw up, I'm going to put you on the plane tomorrow. You're going to go back home. <laughs> so I knew that fear <laughs> that was in the back of my mind every giving night. It was so much higher because I knew if I end up going back home, I've been in trouble with my dad. <laughs> so my dad would have asked me, why did you lose your dream when you did have a scholarship to go get an education, becoming somebody one day, and you're going to go come back here in Africa and becoming nobody. So that fear, that's the reason why I always say, and I was able to stay away from trouble because I grew up in D.C. I came here in a young age. Being in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, so many of you guys who grew up in the East Coast area, Washington was not an easy place to grow up. In the 80s, there was so much violence in D.C. There was a lot of killing in D.C., even though Georgetown is one of the most prestigious universities in the capital city, but we were far away from everything, but we were not really far away from everything. But the thing was about making a proper choice. and. Um, John Thompson was making sure that his student make a proper choice to decide you want to go to school or you want to be a gang or a street kid. And, uh, and we took that side to make sure that we want to be a student, we want to be a basketball player, we want to stay away from that. And he was tough. Very tough. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes I think I didn't go to school at Georgetown. I think I went to the boot camp. Because <laughs> I, I used to go because I, I think I was abused a little bit of being a basketball player because running suicide every day was no joke. Yeah. But they helped me. They helped me to be one of the greatest shot blockers ever. You, and, and there were other people in that Georgetown time who had a big influence on you, including teammates. You mentioned Alonzo Mourning and Patrick Ewing. Alonzo, if I didn't have someone like Alonzo Mourning, great teammate, a great brother, someone that I look as a family member, going against each other every given night, I would have not elevated my game to the point that I did elevate to going to be in the Hall of Fame. But Patrick Ewing, he was our mentor. He was someone who came to Georgetown before us. He was already in the league before us. So for him, it was someone that will say, this is our dream. If we don't listen to him, we don't follow him, we're going to fail. Because he did listen to Coach Thompson. He did everything Coach Thompson told him to do. And he went into becoming one of the top center. And so Coach Thompson was like, you guys are in you guys are nobody. If you don't do what Patrick did, you guys are going to be just another bomb, so you're walking around <laughs> in a seven foot or so. <laughs> Patrick took us in our wing, training us seven hours a day 
Three hours in the morning. Seven hours a day. Yes. Some people think that uh, the lecture playing the game was something that you pick up the ball and went to the gym, start shooting. It was not. We went, we did have a private gym in Maryland where we went to lift the weight for three hours and do all the cardio to make sure we physically fit. And we would come to Georgetown campus around 3, 3.30 and play basketball until 7.30. Um, I didn't have no life, man. Um, I'm having life now, but I didn't have no life before. Yeah. So, so all of this then carried you into the NBA. Uh, yes. And um, you were chosen uh, fourth or number fifth. one overall, but the Denver Nuggets was number four on the pick. Because you didn't want to play in those other uh, cities. <laughs> You're starting some trouble, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I, I was actually helping those cities no, no, out because no, I didn't want them to okay, think they didn't want all the secret to come out. Yes, I didn't want to play for those teams. Uh, one, I didn't want to play for New Jersey because it sucks so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the team location was horrible. It was a bad place. And I thought about where am I going to live if I go play for New Jersey and all that stuff. You know? <laughs> If somebody had told me, Dick, you can go to New Jersey and still live in the city, maybe, but I didn't have nobody to tell me that. That's what I was talking about. <laughs> hey, I'm not against New Jersey, guys. So, um, I ended up playing for New Jersey, hey, by the way. You did. Um, back then, Sacramento was a bad team, too. <laughs> so I didn't want to go to Sacramento. Uh, um, then Charlotte, I was not sure. I think uh, the general manager and the team president of the Charlotte Hornet flew in the day before the draft. He was trying to decide, do we pick the Kemi Mutombo as number one in the draft or we pick Larry Johnson? Then he said to Kemi, people say you're not going to be good when you come to the NBA because you didn't play basketball when you were young. Go Thompson and say, told him and say, hey, you're making a big mistake. These young men, you have a heart to becoming somebody that nobody have not seen. And the general manager was like, if he has the heart, I need to play pickup game against him tonight. This is a general manager of the team. <laughs> and change his clothes, put the shoes on the shirt, and we play for an hour and a half, and I kill him. <laughs> I really did kill him. In the end of the workout, so Coach Thompson was my poor dad. With his tower, he looked at the man and said, so just make your decision. Are you going to pick up my son or not? He said, Coach, I think we have made our decision. We're going to pick up Larry Johnson. Because he tell me you waste my damn two f hours at the club with myself. <laughs> you know, coach was very pissed off of that. And um, he said, you should not even come to my gym. You use my time and you waste my son's time here. He said, get out of my gym. <laughs> so the next morning, uh, they pick up Larry Johnson, who's a good friend of mine, went in to have a great career. Sorry that... Um, his half, uh, his bike was not um, in the right place and he kind of cut his career short, but he was a great man. He was going to be 
If he could have played longer, like I did, I'm not surprised that he could have not been in all FM like I am. So yeah, he was a great player. So let's talk a little bit about your professional career. It worked out where you ended up going for everybody. Yes. Um, but uh, when when you think about it, the career which lasted how many seasons now? It was uh, uh, eighteen in total. Eighteen seasons. Yeah. Too long. So. Uh, uh, <laughs> A few highlights. I mean, and you know that I'm going to ask you about the finger wag and where it came from. But uh, what, what are the things that, that that are front of mind when you think about those 18 years now? Seasons, games? Uh, you know, many people don't know that. The average career in the NBA is three years. Yeah. People don't know that. NBA, we have 450 players. So we lose about 150 to 200 players every year. They just disappear. And nobody don't hear about it. People come to the game, oh yeah, maybe the next guy, new guys. But you never ask, what happened to that guy who was there yesterday? Yeah. Those guys just disappear. So, and it's a cycle that goes on in the NBA. And uh, when you, every day when you wake up and you go to work, our coach used to tell us that, Son, I love you today, but I'm looking at somebody there on the street on the park who's going to take your place tomorrow. And that's what the coaches or the coaches and general managers think every day. So for you to succeed, to be able to play as long as I did, you have to be mentally strong and you have to be gifted and you have to push yourself and you have to be able to convince the owner, the general manager, the team president, the coaches, that you want to stay in the league. Because this league is about who want to help us win. They don't care if you are eight footer, seven footer or six. For them, they want to win and you got to bring all the packages. That will make the NBA great. It's about the competition. And we want to elevate our game every year. And then I was fortunate enough to have enough package that I got from John Thompson, Patrick Ewing, uh, competition I got competing against a lot of money every given day for four years. And uh, you have the ability to play for great coaches who push me, who do let me just to relax. And I was able to play that long. Otherwise, you can quit because like I seen teammates who quitting, who did quit in the middle of the season, they come not coming tomorrow and just pack their bags and go home. So some of the guys have left the NBA with uh, the general manager tell you that we don't want you here. They just quit because emotionally you have to be strong and it's very tough. Um, until now, we don't see many guys reaching 18 years. Right now, I think uh, the numbers like uh, 10 or 15 guys of about 75 years, the NBA has been playing and you still know I have more than 20 guys who have yeah. played more than 18 years. Yeah. That tells you that's a mental approach coming. And this is why you, you're constantly emphasizing education for the college players because yeah. three years on average and, uh, and they're gone. And then, you know, what are they falling back on? That's the problem. Many guys are coming in the NBA in 1920. So by the time they're 23, life is over. So you are obligated to go play in Europe or go play in China 
or go play in a place you've never been, the place that you never studied in college. So you start figuring out is you're integrating yourself to the new society. And uh, that's why the education is very important for our young people to know that the world are becoming smaller. If you're going to do sport, you got to know that this sport I'm doing might not keep me in America, might take me to other places. So it's good for you to learn all the culture, all the languages, um, the food and everything. That way you can move around the world easily. Some people I know, they don't travel, but nobody asks them why you don't travel. They have a problem. Some people, they're afraid, oh, I don't speak that language, I don't want to be there. Oh, I don't like that food, I don't want to go there. So all those stuff. Uh, but if you like an uh, international travel like me, I'll go anywhere. You take me to the moon, I'll go. <laughs> Speaking of which, you you uh, you speak nine languages, is that right? Yes. yes. Okay, w which ones? Oh, I speak English, French, Portuguese, and, uh, English, and all the African dialects. So I can move myself uh, as an NBA Global Ambassador. I'm trying to learn Chinese. Yeah. That's my effort. Well, you're, you're, uh, you, you believe passionately that the NBA will continue to grow in Africa. No, we continue to go. We are growing. India, China, yeah. We are growing. Um, they say um, we have a slogan that we say in the NBA that uh, some people say, NBA, we are coming. NBA, we always say we are here already. So it doesn't matter where you go around the world, you will see the flag of NBA, either with our marketing department, with our TV, because we have the largest TV revenue than any spot in the world. Um, our marketing, they have done a great job. Our commissioner is doing a great job with his teams that he has. Our owner continue to invest in the growth of our game. And now we have a new league in the continent of Africa which I'm part of her, President Obama is part of her, uh, Michael Jordan is part of her, and we have uh, some African uh, business people who have invested on forming the new league. Our game will continue to grow. We really want to go where the people are watching us. We don't want just the people to watch the game, but with the same token, we want the people, the young people around the world to play the game as well. And you were the third Africa, the third player from Africa in, in history, and now there are 35? Uh, right uh, now we have, we have more than 150 players from African who are playing in, in, in NBA. Who have played over time. We have played over yeah. time, right. Yeah. I think this season we have more than 30 or 50. Yeah, that's right, yeah. The that's number's it. a little bit higher. It's amazing. But yeah. And it will continue to grow. If you see the last five years, there have been two or three young Africans are being drafted in the first one, on the top 10. So I think uh, with the opening of the new African League, that number will continue to grow because uh, I think Africa is the new pipeline for the future. In, in Africa, uh, is basketball catching up to soccer as the, because of soccer? No, it will yeah. never catch up, but... Yeah. As an NBA family, I think um, we have in, in Africa so far, and we continue to just invest a billion dollar last year uh, with the new league, and then we built more than already more than uh, 180 basketball courts. Wow. So 
every month the NBA trying to build the new basketball court in the continent. That's the only way the game. You don't have to just give the jersey to the kids and go play basketball. You see basketball, that will make basketball different compared to any sport. You need a court to play basketball and you need some hope to play basketball. But soccer, you can go to any open field, just throw the ball and the kids start playing. And uh, there's a lot more investment yeah. that we need to do and encourage, and we need coaches as well. And I've, I've heard you say that uh, India is another place that you think the game is going to take off on. Yes, India is our new frontier. Africa, we're already there. China, we're already there. You know, um, two-thirds of our revenue come from uh, southeast of China. I think we are doing very well with that, and we're looking to get more revenue from Africa. But India is a, is a great place. We, are, we went there with the Sacramento King uh, two years ago. Um, it was amazing. Like, it was amazing. I think uh, it was one of the successful NBA events that we have had. The growth of our game there is going very fast. Um, there's a big appetite of the game in India right now. We just built more than four academies in China and India. Um, we have more youth in those academies than any places in the world. So we are going. It's a brilliant strategy. I mean, and the game is incredibly healthy and, and it could end up being, I guess it, other than soccer, it's going to be the global game. Yeah, we believe that if you build there, they will come. Yeah. So we believe that whatever we put our basketball court, put just the ball there and the coach kids will come. And uh, we are we are really going to that direction. That's great. Now, before we leave basketball, I want to go to philanthropy. There's so many things to talk with you about, but you do have to talk about the finger wag and where it came from. <laughs> oh, I did it come. I still really don't know which day and what time, but when I got drafted, you can go back on YouTube, you can see it on the day, um, June 25th, 1991. Just got drafted a garden here. My first speech, they say, you happy to be in the NBA? I said, yes. And I said, because I want to dominate. And uh, people was like, you want to dominate? You're coming in a great league where there's a lot of great players. I said, no, I'm not just coming to play basketball. I'm coming to dominate. They say, <laughs> why? Because I say, because I want to play this game that I love so much. And I want one day before I leave the game to becoming one of the great defense players that play the game. But those was the thing I was listening. I was getting preached by my coach, John Thompson. Some you have the ability to dominate a game. I was lucky and fortunate, right? Before the draft, we have someone like Bill Russell, a great legend, who played this game, won more than 11 ring and 10 fingers, cried for God to give him another finger so he can put the other ring. <laughs> this man was a legend. And uh, he flew to DC because he was, he was one of Coach Thompson's mentors. He played with Coach Thompson with the Celtics. And he said, I want to help this young man from Africa. Coach said, please come talk to him. Bill Russell came to Washington, D.C., spent three days with me, just walking around, day and night. He said to me, we're not going to go to the basketball court. 
You go meet, eat breakfast, then go to lunch and go to dinner, then I go back to my hotel. Let's just talk. One thing I always remember about the great Bill Russell that he told me, Dick, if you think you're going to dominate the game the way you're thinking, son, it's always going to be in your head. It's not going to be about you being a seven-footer or being stronger than everybody. But if it's not mentally strong, everyone will destroy you. Because he said, I was fortunate enough to play against someone bigger than me, Will Chamber, who was much stronger than me, taller than me. But he did everything he could have done. But I was much stronger in my head than him, that we was able to beat him every year. He said, you can do it. Don't be discouraged. How many dunks might happen to you in the middle of the game? How many people will come flying on top of your head? <laughs> Think about how many shots are you going to change? Are you going to change this game? And that was my pursuit. And I went to the league. I had the mental toughness and the mental approach. And I said to myself, I'm going to play this game. And I'm going to make sure that nobody cannot drive in the basket. And I'm going to dominate. Then uh, the NBA starts, I start blocking shots and uh, shutting down and uh, everybody in Denver. And I was like, okay, I got it. But you have all those guys who was like, Dick, I'm going to get you today. I'm going to get you today. I said, what's wrong with these people, man? And, um, <laughs> after a few months, I said, hmm, maybe if I do something, maybe I will send them a signal. And I said, maybe start doing my finger work. <laughs> and I started. But people don't know. I lost so much money doing this thing. <laughs> the NBA still owe me a lot of money. They find you for that? I used to pay like, it was like, what, $5,000 every time I do it. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Actually, that's... I used to get tech all the time. And then... Uh, because it was uh, so good for the league. It yeah. was not good. <laughs> <laughs> you don't regret how many coaches was calling the NBA every day complaining. <laughs> we are getting embarrassed. What he's doing is wrong. He's doing that to the people face, blah, blah. And, uh, and uh, my poor late uh, commissioner, Uncle David, you have to tell me that. Um, Please do me a favor. Can you just look it away and do it? <laughs> um, I think that's the reason why I work in the NBA now. Because they're trying to give me my money back. <laughs> that's good. Well, they owe, it to, they owe it to you. So did you ever, uh, I wanted to talk to you about Jordan, because he has the foul shot where he, he mentions you. Where, uh, did you ever uh, do that to him? When did he do that? The foul shot. It took him about seven years to do that. <laughs> so you should tell because Michael was so fascinated about my ability of blocking shot. I think he was wondering that you should come play for the Bulls with me. But, and he was like, every night he was like, Dick, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. So it took Michael about seven years <laughs> to try, try to get one dunk of a Mutombo. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that time, he knew the game was so tough. We was winning the game anyway. It was like, Mutombo, I know you've been blocking all the shots, but this is for you. And he closes the eye, make the, the free throws, but, which was great. But I always tell him that uh, 
It took him seven years. <laughs> it took the, him seven years to climb over Mamutongo. <laughs> for, for, for those who haven't seen the clip, it's an amazing clip because Jordan's at the foul line and he says, Mutombo, this is for you. And he closes his eyes and he makes the foul shot swish. Uh, and I was wondering, I, I never knew the background on it. But, yeah, uh, he's a good guy. But there, there's but also... so many of these too. Yeah, it sounds like... <laughs> It sounds like you got a lot of them. No, so if you walk on my basement, the first picture you see me going to catch him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's uh, let's transition, and uh, I'll uh, we'll let the audience later ask any more basketball questions. But let's transition to something that I think is um, uh, you're as passionate about as basketball, and that really is philanthropy and trying to uh, to make a difference in the world. Um, and you know, I, I uh, the last time I, I did a live interview here, it was with Derek Jeter, who has oh, a similar and, and a similar mindset around philanthropy. Derek started his Turn Two Foundation in his rookie season, when you know he might not have gone on to become Derek Jeter, but he already had a foundation. And you started right away in '97. You were in yes. the league just a little bit. Um, and you've done a tremendous amount on the philanthropy front uh, through your foundation. But let's talk about two things that are near and dear to your heart and, and through which you've, uh, you've done great things, but you've also honored your parents. And you built a hospital in your mother's name in, in Congo. And you also uh, built a uh, school in your father's name, which opened literally a last month ago, month. last month. So let's talk about both of those and, and uh, uh, take your time with the audience because you deserve to have the floor on that. Thank you. Um, thank you for touching the topics where they touch my heart on a daily basis. Uh, not just me, my family, my wife, and my children. So our parents are no longer with us because what we do is, is carry on the family tradition. Um, my father was an educator, my father in law was an educator. My mom was a housewife, my mother-in-law. So you look at for my wife and I, look at my grandparents. We come from that really Christian value family by giving back to the society, being helpful, being contributor. Um, when I got a chance to be in the shoes that I am on, I felt like I did some way of a moral duty to be an example in the society. Um, came from a father who was a teacher, made $37 as a teacher, taught almost for 38 years in the school system. And, uh, My father was a teacher too. Yes, uh, those are great men. I yes. love them. I wish I was a teacher. Um, but um, he passed on so much value to me. He passed on to so much value to me until he passed away in 2013. He was a great man. He taught us about a lot of things about being an example, and uh, he didn't just raise his 10 children. He raised us with uncles. My father was the first one in his family out of 10 to go to college. He was the only one who graduated from college in his family, the only one who was able to buy a first home in his family. So he was very always helpful. So I tried to follow so many things that my dad did, but I went a little bit far to do more. But they always say, you cannot build a nation if you don't address the issue of health and education. There is no nation that prospers if there's a people who are not educated. Yeah, you cannot have a great nation 
if you don't address the issue of health. Health is the number one because people have to be healthy for them to be productive in a society. As we are here gathering in these beautiful places here, we are fighting with what we call the pandemic of COVID. And we're fighting why because we all want to be healthy. That's the reason why we're not even wearing masks today because we know that we want to be in that type of environment to become be productive in a society. Many people in New York today are not being able to go to their office because we are so scared of this pandemic we are living on. So building the hospital was a big factor to me, especially after my late mother passed away. My mom died at home in the living room in front of to my dad and brothers and sisters. So for me as a young man, not being able to witness my mom living this, passing on to another world and leaving us and not be there for a funeral, it kind of took me a lot of shock to be like, how many more women are dying up there in Africa that we don't know? What is the number? And I did my research with uh, CDC, uh, NIH, and, uh, went to the Geneva, and then I found out that the mortality rate in the Congo was 42 for men, 42 for women. And I say, whoa, this is where I come from. And that is the age that people are dying for because there's lack of a healthcare system. Cannot be part of the solution. I didn't say that I'm going to become a solution in society. I said, I want to be part of the solution in society. And uh, I decided that I would go and create the foundation. The first goal would be to build a hospital. By the support of friends and family, I was, we was able to build uh, the first modern hospital in more than 45 years in the Congo, where right now we are treated almost close to 800,000 women and children. We are very happy with that. After I did that, then I, then I started thinking more about my father after he passed away. Then uh, two and a half years ago, my wife and I were traveling back home. And I told my wife that I think uh, we should do something for my dad. I think I want to build a school. I said, why? I said, I want to build a school. Then they said, where the money will come from? I said, I'm just going to call up to friends who will support me to build a school. Then the pandemic came. We went to talk to the government. We said, we want to build a school. They said, but you built a hospital. You sure you want to build a school? We said, yes. They said, the foundation want to build a school. And the government gave me 100 acres of land. They said, Mutombo, if you're going to build a school, go ahead and do it. And a year went by, everybody was like, oh, no, 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 he lied to the population. Oh, he lied. He was not going to build a school. And then, uh, we went there and did the groundbreaking in the middle of the uh, pandemic. Then uh, I went there and did a uh, couple media. Next time I knew, checks start coming in to my office. And uh, pulled, people just start pouring money to the foundation. They came in, if you're going to do it, we're going to be there with you. And, uh, and we ended up raising a couple million, million dollars. And uh, we went in and built a beautiful 
first modern science school in the Congo with a very, very advanced technology, um, clean energy, clean water. So everything independent. Um, the school was opening in November 5th with more than 420 kids. We got our own electrical system. We put all the solar panels. Uh, we have the wells. Um, so we are totally independent. We are not worrying about because in Congo, the electricity goes out like a 10 or 20 times a day. So you don't want to be in that situation. So we are really in the best environment. So we built the first phase, kindergarten to six. And then next year, we're opening the seventh grade. And then we, every year, we're going to be editing two classes uh, all the way to 12th grade. I'm very exciting. I am very exciting with my contribution to the society. Um, my thing, talking to the forum like this, it's not about just asking people for money. It's about telling people my story and challenging them to also go make a difference. Um, there's a great proverb in Africa said that when there's a problem affecting one part of the society, it becoming a responsibility about, about to every human being who lives in this planet. And uh, there's so many children out there who don't have no access to a great education, especially in Africa, in South America, and Southeast Asia. They need our help. They really need our help. You can build a nice modern school with half a million to a million, depending on how much money you want to spend. It's just we as a people, we can change that. Half of population living in African continent right now are at the age of 19 years old. We are talking about almost like one, almost 1.2 billion people. If we don't prepare the generation, we don't give them all the tools that they need to grow with, we're going to create another society of uh, terrorists, gangsters, so we have an obligation. We do, we as a people, when I mean, including me, we, we have an obligation to make a difference. This is, I mean, just to, to recap there, uh, the hospital opened in 2007 and has treated over 800,000 patients. The school just opened and there's over 400 students and it's on its way to a much bigger number. Free education, no tuition. Free, free education, uh, no tuition. Talk about having an impact in, in uh, one's country. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, not only the people in your, your countrymen and the people in the Congo, but people around the world have noticed this because uh, have, have seen what you've done in terms of the mindset and the, the desire to give back and make a difference. You've met and, and, and been honored by almost every American president in your, in, you know, since you showed up uh, in the NBA, right? I'm lucky. But, but, it, but a lot of the reason why is because you've made a difference in the Congo, here, and you've wanted to make a difference. I think um, every living president of America has been touched by my story. And uh, I am uh, the product of the United States because the United States gave me, the United States government gave me the opportunity to come here. 
the United States government gave me that scholarship. I'm so thankful to have been lucky, been fortunate enough to have a scholarship from the U.S. government, the State Department, to come here in the U.S. to pursue my education. So um, that I feel very protected in America by the American government. And uh, um, which which president did you enjoy talking to the most? All of them, <laughs> except one. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, Except only one. Yes. <laughs> All of them, I love them. Uh, on that note, I'm going to take a few questions from, we'll take a few questions from the audience and then I'll, I'll come back and we'll wrap up. Uh, so uh, here's your chance to ask a question of uh, Dikembe. Yes, sir. So, uh, wait for a mic, please. It's coming. Hello, Dikembe. My name is Pablo Jenkins. I'm from Costa Rica and have a lot of very good friends in, in Africa that are common friends from Georgetown and from the way the French have been investing there for a while, but they're looking at a way that I would love your opinion on. I come from a country that decided to eliminate the army and invest in health and education, managed to gain life expectancy while also bringing back nature. If I look to the year 2050 or 2100, the future of how we make it in this planet is very obviously in Africa. In a way that hopefully nature's ability to hold life has also come back. It's yes. like the Wakeman Wall. Focused on well-being, maybe than traditional other measures can help. How do you imagine these kind of spaces when we think long-term capital and beyond impact investing, we can look at the future of African cities and learn from examples that have happened elsewhere nature and well-being actually become the the center of a new model? Great question. I think at first we need to save this planet that we're living in. That's one of the reasons why um, about two weeks ago I launched another great initiative about um, capturing the carbon, saving our forests in this world that we are living in. We cannot try to destroy everything uh, surrounding us. A lot of people are chasing uh, the natural resource, including myself, um, which are pursuing uh, clean energy with cobalt and coppers. But at the same time, we have to think about our forests. Uh, so many countries in South America the beauty of the natures are disappearing. Our beaches are disappearing. Our forests are disappearing. But we are we cutting trees, but we're not planting no trees. That's becoming another big forces that we need to do. Um, there's a lot of things we as a human, we are responsible. Um, my question always comes, what kind of planet are we leaving to our next generation? Those are some of the moral duty each one of us should be thinking of. We can have money, we can have as much fortune as we have living in those beautiful places, but what are we leaving to our children? What kind of duty? Because you can leave them money, but if the world is burning around them, they're not going to have peace. And uh, 
Those are the efforts that uh, we need to put to make sure that uh, we can succeed in the same time that uh, the next generation can continue to live a better life that we did live in. Questions on this side? Ms. Rowell. Dikembe, uh, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank um, you. you know, it, when, when you talked about 18 years in the league, that's a unique insight as to how the NBA has evolved over time. When you look back at when you began in the NBA versus today, how has the game changed? And, and then the second question is, you talked about the globalization of the NBA brand. What do you think happens in the next 18 years? And what does it look like 18 years from now? Um, eight, first, repeat again your first question. I know this again. <laughs> your first question was. First question was how. I'm sorry. First question is how did the game change? How has the game changed? How has the game changed? The game changed a lot. Uh, I have to reserve myself answering that question. <laughs> I can get in trouble uh, because uh, <laughs> we have one of the owners here, so I gotta watch out what I'm saying. <laughs> So, uh, no, 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 the game changed a lot. Um, when I play, I can break somebody's nose and not go get kicked out of the game, you know. Uh, I played 18 years, I only broke 22 noses. So, <laughs> and I never got suspended. And, uh, because there was like a, it was just a regular foul. Well, was, was that a joke or did you break 22 noses? No, Google <laughs> I heard it here. I don't have to now. Oh, Google. Yeah. You can get your phone, Google. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, and so, you never got thrown out? No. Yeah. Because it was part of the game. Yeah. You know, I hold, I hold my elbow high, and you run to my elbow, you get knocked out. <laughs> so, today, if you, you, you hold yourself so high, somebody get knocked out, you get suspended. So the game changed. Um, I think... <laughs> You know, Kelly's here, so I gotta be nice. <laughs> uh, so now the game changed. Uh, I think uh, the league uh, protected our players a uh, lot. Uh, it's gonna be different. I don't know. I think the game will reverse. It's a cycle that we're going through. Uh, the Generation X that are playing now, they're playing a different game where they come, they're just. Shoot, 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 shoot. Uh, our game was you come, you hold the ball, you throw the ball inside, big man trying to do what he have to do, then you throw it out, and sometimes you take a shot or you throw back to the big man, the big man go to work. So it's a different game, so. But I think that game will come back again. But we do see the same game that we played in the 90s and the 2000s and the 80s when we come to the playoff. If you watch basketball so much, you will see that the game we watch in a regular season is not the same game we watch in the playoff. You see that the game go like, whoa, it just shifts right away. Um, I think that's what it will happen because 
when we get to the playoff, everybody goes on TV because they know that the best game they want to watch, and I think they're going to keep watching. And Michael, you asked about Brandon and uh, Brandon on the line. The, the reference to the brand was in the future, as as the NBA brand becomes more global in China, and it's really global. Do you see the? Do you see it developing into the American champion plays the? Yeah, you know, when, when you think far out, do you see something like that? I think it will happen. It's already happening. We already have a league in Africa. And uh, I believe that one day, we, I, don't, I don't see why we cannot have a NBA Asia or NBA Europe. I think it will happen. It's just a question of time. And the structure got to be done properly because we talk about, you know, people talk about, oh, but they happen in Africa. But when did we open the office in Africa? That was in 2010. So it's been 11 years. It took us 11 years to open the office, go out and do all the diligent work and study the fundamental of the game and the, the culture, um, the business, all of that to see how can we make it work. So what we came up with the conclusion that for you to be part of the NBA Africa, to have a team as a country, you need to build a stadium that seats more than 10 to 15,000 people. So we mandate, the NBA mandate every African nation that, oh, you want a basketball? You want to see the really game? You put a stadium in. Spend a couple million dollars, put a beautiful stadium, and the stadium you have to have the same standard of the NBA. And then so many nations, I'm blessed. And the first one was, uh, well, President Kagame from Rwanda. He was like, okay, I'm gonna be the first. He was the first one to build the stadium. Then when he put it, everybody was like, okay, Senegal, when they did it much bigger, they put a stadium that sit more than 20 some plus thousand people, a beautiful stadium. If you get a chance to go to Senegal, you can go see it. And uh, Nigeria is building two stadium. Angola built another great stadium. South Africa already got a couple of stadium. Um, Egypt got a couple of stadiums, so we see the effect of the NBA. Our game is having more effect in the world than the people don't imagine. Uh, one more question, Jack Ryan. I, I got a double question. One's a, a, a lighter one. Yeah, Dikembe, you had some really intense rivalries in college and in the pros. So I'd like to know which team you loved to beat the most. And then the second question is, we have a lot of uh, people around uh, the Rockefeller ecosystem starting foundations and building foundations. And from your experience, because it's harder than it looks, so what advice would you give uh, to us who are, are, are endeavoring to do so? Uh, the first question. Um... I kind of enjoy my career. I enjoy playing in a league. Um, you really don't have one particular team that you want to whip all the time. But every given game, you want to win. But the coaches will tell you from day one that some, you don't want to win all your game because it's going to be 
some given time where you show up in the arena and nothing is going your way. It's not that you're becoming a bad basketball player, that things are just not going your way. The other team, you have a little bit of advantage or great momentum from the beginning of the game. It happens, it's just a part of nature. Your body, sometimes you wake up, your body is not responding to everything you're asking. Um, there's no Superman in the game of basketball. There's not. Nobody will tell you, or Michael was a Superman, or LeBron was a super. Is a Superman. Nobody's a Superman there. You will have your day. Somebody will come and kick your ass. You don't know when is that day is coming. It's just gonna come. Um, on the philanthropic side, that's a great, great, great question. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, I tell all the family. If you have enough money, you want to build a legacy for your family. Go and do it, but do it properly. Sit down, figure out what you want to do. First, you need to be involved in the cause that you believe in. Don't just create a foundation that you have no purpose. I see that a lot. There's so many family foundations, people that create the foundation so nobody doesn't have to bother them. So either you create a foundation so you can just give the money away, you can do that, or you create a foundation with the mission that you'll be helping school, or you'll be helping the hospital, or you're going to be helping the Museum of Art, or you're going to be helping people to go into space, whatever, and you create a box. Why you create your foundation? Just make sure you have put some money on the side for the endowment. Because you always want to know tomorrow, when I'm not here, can the family foundation keep going? Can the kids take over and they continue to do that mission? It depends if there's a hospital, make sure the hospital you have an endowment or the school you have an endowment. That's something that my family foundation that we've been working on and they're building that diamond, getting them diamonds wrong. Good question. Dikembe, uh, I'm going to close with the following. Um, you've had an unbelievable career in life so far, and it's obviously ongoing. Uh, having accomplished what you did on the court and then having accomplished what you have uh, from a philanthropic standpoint and just in terms of setting an image and a model that something needs to be done and you're gonna lead it. It's 2021, about to be 2022. So in another 10 or 20 years, what are the additional legacies that you wanna to add to the Dikembe Mutombo story? Uh, finish the school. Um, my first class will be graduating um, in six years. 2027. Hopefully they will graduate in the best environment, beautiful campus, and they will get a chance to get free scholarship to go to America, to go to Europe or Southeast Asia to study or in other country in Africa. That's what's our goal and my family. Um, to give those young people hope you know, when I built the hospital, Greg, to me it was to give those mother and children hope.
Because in Africa, where I come from, my wife will tell you, people go to the hospital to die. In Africa, when they, you say, oh, my mom is in the hospital, people say, oh. They don't ask you nothing because they know, oh, that means she's very sick. Oh, my dad is in the hospital. Sometimes they say, oh, how long, this, how long do you think he got? So the conversation changed because that's the reason why people, even when they're sick in Africa, they refuse to go to the hospital. Because they know if they keep you in the hospital for one day, two days in the hospital, everybody in the family start panicking. What is going on? What will happen to the wife or to the husband? It's a talk. So we want to change that, that when you go to the hospital, you go in there because they're going to take care of you and you will come home. It will take another generation to change that process. And we are working on that. And we just want to continue to give people hope. We want to believe that our future generation will have a better education and better healthcare system than what we did have in the continent of Africa. And uh, that there will be more Dikembe Mutombo that will come and that will follow my example and go and make a difference. And um, I think there was more people like me before who did a lot and there will be more like me in the future. And, um, well, the, the world is certainly lucky. There's been one Dikembe Mutombo. And uh, I always, uh, Dikembe, at the end of our talks at Rockefeller Capital Management, I always close with a quotation that uh, really sums it all up. Uh, and Derek Cheater has this hanging in his office, and there's really only one I can think of, uh, given the uh, impact you've had on the continent of Africa and on this country. But Nelson Mandela very famously said, it always seems impossible until it is done. And I sit here and I listen to you, and I think that's what he thinks all the time. He can be Mutombo. I was lucky and um, lucky enough to get a chance to meet Madiba. Yeah. I was the first athlete in the sport to ever meet up with him when he came out from the prison. So it's a very historical mark for my life. And, uh, what was that like? I was crying in tears. And, uh, to be in the presence of someone who has spent 27 uh, years in prison for uh, freedom of his people. And, uh, and I don't know how he knew my name, because I, I never visited him in prison before. And uh, when he walked in the room, I was standing there with uh, our late commissioner, David, and uh, he said, he came here from Congo. Also, you know, it was about 10 of us, and he just kept pointing up on me. He said, please, don't forget about the future of these children. They need people like you. And to hear that, this was in the 92 for that old man talking to you. I knew that he felt that if I mended myself to come see him, because I was following what he was passionate about. So um, I'm glad that I was so lucky enough. You, you followed it. Uh, Dikembe Mutombo, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs>